0: Tchau,
1: Dolly Parton there with a classic nine to five. You are an in-your-face on 3CR with James. On today's show, Matthew Roberts joins us. We chat with Joe Ball and Jules Allen. Well, last night, the Victorian Parliament passed the Sex Work Decriminalisation Bill. On the line, we have Matthew Roberts from Sex Work Law Reform Victoria. Matthew, what a historic time this is for sex workers in Victoria.
2: It certainly is, but I'm so grateful that you're having me on this Show on this very historic day.
1: Yeah, you're the policy officer for sex work law reform Victoria. You have been working so hard on this issue for so long, as have you know so many activists like Cheryl Overs, uh, Jane Green, uh, Marianne Phoenix. The list goes on. Of course, Fiona Patton, the upper house MP from the Reason Party. Uh, it must have been quite a moment in the Legislative Council last night when it passed. You were in the gallery. What was it like?
2: When the final vote happened, James, it, the gallery erupted in applause and cheers and clapping and there was just the air suddenly changed and the the MPs were exuberant and so was the gallery. So you could really feel it in the air uh, that there was a change in mood, that there was a, a weight lifted off our shoulders.
1: Absolutely, because the impacts on sex workers of criminalisation have been awful for, for you know for decades and decades in Victoria, uh, this must be a huge relief for the community. It must be very empowering for the community as well.
2: I think those are two pretty good words. It is a relief. It feels like a collective weight has been lifted off our shoulder, having to worry about the police being arrested, that you'll be caught, evicted. All of those worries, when the changes apply, will be lifted and we can start to sort of think of ourselves as equal members of society.
1: Because it very much is a workers' rights issue, isn't it? You know, take out the sex and it's about, you know, every worker's rights, really, isn't it? And sex workers are no different.
2: Well, exactly. That's how we frame the argument. That's how Labor did. And that's what it's about. Sex workers work. It is payment for a professional service. And governments uh, need to recognise that and regulate accordingly morality, Christianity, Um, none of these things should be part of the debate. It should be about work
1: and workers' rights. Absolutely. And what a contrast in Victoria to what's been happening in Canberra on those very issues around morality. Uh, The contrast couldn't be stronger, could it?
2: I know. I mean, and we've seen in Canberra with this conservative um, Liberal government uh, how so many things can go wrong when religious values and morality come into politics. And fortunately here in, in the state parliament in Victoria... The Labor government here really has taken a different approach and has left religion out of it and focused on the issues at stake and what actually affects people's lives on the ground.
1: Yeah, so tell us a bit about the substance of, of, of the Act. I know there's two timelines. Can you explain um, what will kick in and when?
2: Yes. So there are two timelines for when the bill will actually, um, when the laws will actually apply. There was a last-minute amendment that Labor put forward that means that the first part of changes will come through, I think it's on the 10th of May, and that will be the anti-discrimination changes and the private sex worker register being erased. The second date is the 1st of December 2023, for next year, and that's when the the remainder of the licensing system and the brothel-specific laws will go.
1: So, in terms of private, you know, uh, sex workers, like independent contractors, if you like, people who work for themselves, uh, there's going to be a change uh, very, very soon. Tell us a bit more about what that will mean for sex workers.
2: For sex workers working privately and independently? Yeah, they,
1: for example, will they be able to work from home?
2: There will no longer be a criminal penalty stopping them from working from home. So, that will no longer be a crime. We still need to wait for what council laws will say about the working-from-home issue, but it will no longer be a criminal offence. Private sex workers will no longer need to put themselves, their legal names, on a database accessible by police. That database is going to be erased and gotten rid of, which we all celebrate. I mean, we've been fighting for this for years. Private sex workers will also be able to advertise and describe their services and have more freedom about um, their advertising. And they will also, um, as I said, be able to work in different places, hotel rooms. Hopefully they'll be able to get bank accounts as well. Uh, A whole bunch of mostly advertising restrictions are really what kind of caught out a lot of private sex workers.
1: You mentioned the banks. They put a huge amount of pressure on sex workers. uh, And we've heard horrible stories about people having their bank accounts foreclosed. Um, The decriminalisation must put enormous pressure on the banks to no longer do stuff like that.
2: Well, you know what? You're, You're absolutely right, James. That's one of the consequences of this. So we've got two sort of equally important parts of the bill. One, we remove those criminal laws for consensual adult sex work. That's a good thing. But the bill, and this is where the bill is unique in the world, because no other of the three jurisdictions that decriminalise sex work manage to also add in anti-discrimination protection for sex workers. And this bill does that. And so what that will do is that will, that will, right now, the banks are probably discussing and planning, do they need to update their policies? Are they going to lift their game? because so far the banks have been shocking when it comes to sex work and this bill is going to force them to reassess their risk assessment and their practices.
1: So this means that service providers can't discriminate against people because they're a sex worker. That has huge impacts on on all kinds of services, as you say, banks, but many others as well.
2: I mean, most notably Airbnb. Sex workers routinely uh, get banned from Airbnb and it's a global ban for life. So if Airbnb finds out that you're a sex worker, even if you don't use the property for sex work, just for a normal holiday, you're banned.
1: My God. So it really does have a huge impact, not just on sex workers' working lives, but their private lives as well.
2: It does, because what we see, James, is that the banks and Airbnb ban personal accounts that actually have nothing to do with the work. So, you might have a personal savings account that, that you know is not used for your sex work, that gets cancelled a private accommodation that's not used for sex work. We can see evictions there or refusals there. So this will give sex workers a legal mechanism to fight back and actually take these challenges to a tribunal and we'll certainly be supporting sex workers to do that.
1: And just the kind of, you know, psychological impact of this legislation, knowing that, you know, all quarters of people's lives aren't potentially, you know, a stigmatised quagmire because of the work that they do, that must have huge, you know, benefits.
2: I mean, it does. I mean, we can talk about mental health benefits. We can talk about social health, uh, legal rights and mental health all being interconnected. And so there's, there's every reason to believe that taking that weight, that collective weight of sex workers' shoulders will have flow on a health, a, um, benefits for the health of sex workers and beyond.
1: Tell us a little bit about the parliamentary debate in the Legislative Council this week. First of all, what were some of the great speeches in support of the decriminalisation of sex work?
2: Well, no surprises for guessing that Fiona Patton was a standout performance. She um, spoke with passion. She knows issues. But interestingly, James, and this is what really um, I didn't see coming, she's read historian Barbara Minchinson's book The Women of Little Lon. She quoted from it and she urged people to read it because it's a book about 19th century sex work and to look at how far Victoria's come since the bad old days. So she was inspired by looking back more than 100 years to look at where we need to be uh, considering how the police used to treat sex workers. So, so that was Fiona's speech. Obviously, she backs the bill and she spoke about her life, how she was outed by the media as a sex worker and um, she understands stigma that, that can come with sex work.
1: I imagine there were some other very powerful speeches as well. Can you talk about some of them?
2: Yeah, sure. Two Labor standouts were um, Labor's Harriet Shing. She's, she's a powerful proponent of the bill. She spoke with conviction and passion, and it's, it was great to hear, hear her. Labor's Sheena Watt. She's been in the Parliament only since late 2020. She was almost brought to tears in her speech, because she talked about her childhood values and what her late father taught her about how to how to treat others with dignity and respect. So Sheena Watt was another standout performance. Libertarian MP David Limbrick, who's actually quite a big critic of the government, he came on board and he praised the bill as well. So we actually had a surprising uh, range of support coming from different quarters of the parliament, including some conservative quarters.
1: Okay, so what was, the, what was the final vote? What were the numbers, if you like, in the Legislative Council last night?
2: James, I was too busy clapping and cheering. I didn't count. So I actually don't know. I know that we know that there was a win, and I saw some people who were standing on either side, but I actually don't have the numbers. So I'm just too caught up in the moment. Uh, so I actually can't give you the numbers.
1: So did any um, Liberal or National Party MPs uh, vote in favour of the decriminalisation of of sex work? Were they given a conscious vote? I imagine they weren't. Um, I
2: I don't think they were. One standout, I mean, they didn't vote for it, but one standout kind of bizarre Liberal Party MP um, was Gordon Rich Phillips, who actually kind of praised the anti-discrimination clause, clause 34, not for sex workers, but because it will also help gun dealers avoid banking discrimination. So he spoke at length about gun rights and how that will benefit, he believes, from the anti discrimination laws. That was a kind of a bizarre one, I have to say.
1: Very bizarre. <laughs> Quite an um, alarming take on it, almost, isn't
2: it? Well, look, I mean, t- to be fair, uh, Labor clarified that at the um, protected attribute occupation, Will protect any occupation, sex work or otherwise. So this bill actually has benefits for a wide range of people who could experience discrimination.
1: What about those coalition MPs that just, you know, really embarrass themselves with what they said? I know there was some scaremongering around HIV/AIDS. Uh, what can you tell us about some of those really embarrassing moments from the Liberal Opposition here in Victoria?
2: Okay, so from the Liberal Opposition, no surprises hardcore conservative Christian Bernie Finn was, as expected, the worst performer. He couldn't use the word sex work. He had to use the word prostitute. He, feels, he said that the only help that sex workers need is help to get them out of the industry so they can stop selling their bodies. And at one point, he actually couldn't utter the word sex, and Fiona Patton actually briefly interrupted and said it for him. Wow. So um, no surprises there. We're actually, um, James, where we had the biggest fear-mongering about HIV and STIs actually came from Dr Catherine Cumming, one of the cross She was really poor on this bill, and she spoke at length during question time at the committee stage and in her speech about um, the health impacts and sex workers spreading STIs and mandatory testing, She was shocking when it comes to um, the human rights of sex workers when it comes to public health and STIs.
1: Dear me, that's concerning, isn't it? On a positive note to finish with, Matthew, I mean, on Sunday here in, in Melbourne, in Fitzroy, Collingwood, just around the corner from 3CR, in fact, uh, we've got the Victorian Pride celebrations uh, commemorating the uh, the enactment of the decriminalisation of homosexuality in 1981. Of course, last year was 40-year anniversary because of COVID. It was delayed. Uh, But what a wonderful, you know, kind of piece of synchronicity that the week, the same week, if you like, we've got sex work decriminalised in Victoria because there are a huge number of queer sex workers.
2: That's exactly right. There are so many queer sex workers. They get stigma. They get discrimination. And, you know, James, for your listeners who may not be the sex workers themselves, it's in many ways decriminalising sex work. is similar to decriminalising homosexual acts all those decades ago Most gay men understand that your life is not better when you have to fear the police seven days a week.
1: Absolutely. Well, Matthew, congratulations to you and Sex Work Law Reform Victoria and, of course, other activist groups such as the Scarlet Alliance and the Vixen Collective and uh, activists, you know, from all around the state who have really, really fought hard for this for many decades. Congratulations to you all and thank you so much for joining us on 3CR on this historic occasion, the decriminalisation of sex work in Victoria.
2: Thanks, James, and thank you for all of your support leading up to this historic day.
1: My pleasure. Take care. Cheers. Thank you. Matthew Roberts there from Sex Work, Law Reform, Victoria. You are on In Your Face on 3CR with James. My there, Rumble, you are an in-your-face on 3CR with James. Well, this week, the Prime Minister tried to rearrange the truth and market the religious discrimination bill as being about trans kids in school by linking its passage through the Parliament to an amendment of the Sex Discrimination Act. On the line, we have Joe Ball, the CEO of Switchboard here in Victoria. Joe, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks,
3: James. Love being on the show.
1: It's so great to chat with you. Uh, I wish it was under better circumstances. Uh, it's great the bill's been shelved for now, but what a low in Australian politics. What do you make of all the machinations this week?
3: Yeah, look, I think a lot of people are feeling like I certainly am, that it's felt like a bit of a mini postal survey all over again. That same kind of sensation of a just about our lives that we never asked for, um, and just a lot of uh, sort of uh, circus really, from the politicians and um, and a lot of airtime given to hate speech. And I think the fact that it's actually been shelved um, is... Uh, some people are calling it a stay of execution. Um, and I think, I, I think that definitely it's a delay. That's what it is. It's not over. And I feel very unhappy. In some ways, I would have loved to see the bill be voted down and out, but actually what it's been done is postponed.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It looks like it's going to a Senate inquiry. Uh, what are your observations at Switchboard about how this has been impacting on the community? I mean, it must just be awful, some of the stories you're hearing.
3: Yeah, look, I think people um, are distressed, um, and they're seeing, these, seeing people um, in their own communities, um, you know, whether it's faith leaders, um, sort of debate issues. So they're seeing it in a local way. Is seeing on the national stage of Parliament House, um, people are feeling again that sort of environment of the postal survey where it's everywhere you look. Um, and I think that, you know, it's, it's people, what we're seeing is that thankfully people are reaching out and contacting our two different helplines, New Life and Rainbow Door, and we always welcome that. And it's great that if people need to talk, they are talking and they're reaching out. But we're definitely seeing that this. As if we need this. That's the emphasis. That's what people are telling us. It's like, if we need this on top of everything else, on top of COVID, on top of lockdown, you know, this is. we never asked for it. We don't want it. Um, you know, go away. That's what people are telling us.
1: It's been a huge miscalculation, I think, from the Prime Minister because, uh, as you say, it's like, you know, an extension of the marriage equality debate and that was pretty clear when the Australian Christian Lobby on radio over the past week said they were in daily communication with the Prime Minister's office about about the bill. Uh, and just looking at some of the MPs uh, from the right who who you know have been arcing up about this, uh, and it's shelving. It really does seem like Mark II from from marriage equality. But what a miscalculation when most Australians are concerned about COVID, uh, yep. the economy, and issues like climate change.
3: Absolutely, and I'd add to that list the um, aged care, the absolute crisis in aged care. I mean. Always want to raise this issue because of our older people's program, but you know what's happening is a COVID outbreaks in aged care and the total inaction on on the royal commission's recommendations. And I think the other thing that people are really thinking about is raise the rate, um, which is an increase in you know in job keeper and unemployment benefits. I think um, COVID has shown us uh, how it can be how it can be done differently and how we can actually have a more humanitarian response to people who are accessing those benefits. I think they're the conversations that people want to talk about. Um, Yes, we need religious, we do need something in our constitution that protects people of faith, particularly minority people of faith, in order that we can address people like Fraser Anning and sort of white supremacist opinions and people who want to ban the hijab. We do need protection against those elements. Um, But this bill wasn't about that. It was about payback for marriage equality, it was a pet project of the Prime Minister um, and it was, it was a nasty, nasty piece of work.
1: I'm really glad that you focused on aged care because one of the insidious provisions is its capacity to enable aged care providers to discriminate uh, on the basis of religion. I mean, how, how distressing is that for the most vulnerable people in our community?
3: That's right, and I think it's, um, and we're still there, right? But we, <laughs> we haven't received any, even though, you know, like, a, and I think um, what we hear from LGBTI older people is, is the real fear of going into aged care because they're worried about having that level of discrimination and that, and, and being so vulnerable as people are in aged care or in any kind of care settings or hospital settings. People are so vulnerable, and they don't want to know that there's a right to discriminate. Um, when they're in that vulnerable position.
1: It's interesting, isn't it? Like the the Prime Minister was really using trans kids in schools as a bit of a decoy to kind of, I guess, you know, stir up prejudice uh, and to tap into that kind of, you know, evangelical kind of campaigning in the US that's happening around gender diversity Mm. in schools, Um, but also using it to kind of, you know, divert attention from the insidious aspects, like other insidious aspects, like aged care.
3: Yeah, I think that that we, we in the end we saw what was the clear motivation, which was a can you know control over bodies, which the religious right, whether it's abortion or trans healthcare, is obsessed with, and that's what we saw in the end, the real guts of what they wanted to do, um, and we saw yeah that kind of like the insidious nature of the bill, which is. Um, you know, has nothing to do with religious protection. And I, I think that, yeah, I, I think that this was a week where it was really important that we saw actually religious organisations come out and oppose the bill and talk about, you know, moderate religious... moderate and progressive um come out and say how much they didn't want the bill. And we did see that from the Uniting Church as one example and a range of religious-based healthcare providers. And I really welcome that because we actually need to hear from people of faith themselves, how much they don't need this bill.
1: A lot of focus has been on the five MPs who crossed the floor Mm -hmm. in relation to religious schools being able to expel trans kids. Um, How much damage do you think this has done to the Prime Minister?
3: Yeah, look, I mean, the comments that have been made in the media um, and by Peter Dutton this morning, Peter Dutton was on Radio National this morning talking about how he was surprised, how he and the Prime Minister was surprised. Um, They expected Trent Zimmerman to cross the floor and they expected Bridget Archer, but they didn't expect the other three. And I think it speaks to the character of their leadership that obviously people... There is a bully-boy culture there where people are not having open and transparent conversations with the leaders in the party. So I think it's done incredible damage On the flip side, for our community, it's given a confidence um, that there are people in Parliament on any side who will have a moral compass about trans issues and about trans young people issues. And I felt like, you know, there's two ways you can look at it. And I think I want to sort of look at the the hopeful side and, and some of the comments that did come from Trent Zimmerman and Bridget Archer and Dave Sharma, the you know the rebel liberals, if you like, and actually how they were so compelled by people, by trans people in their own electorate, uh, parents of trans kids and trans people themselves, who reached out and said, "I oh, look, I live in your electorate, and this is my life, and I want you to stand up for me." And they gave those kind of um, comments on the floor, and I think that that's hopeful that we that there is a moral compass there, um, and that there is. Things are ever
1: so slowly changing. It's quite extraordinary that the Prime Minister of Australia couldn't have, you know, empathy with those people who were reaching out to their local MPs uh, and couldn't actually realise that, you know, what he was pushing, what he was trying to push through the parliament was actually abusive towards vulnerable children. Uh, It seems quite extraordinary that, that he couldn't see that.
3: Yeah, I think that there's a lot of a correlation that goes back to HIV about how our issues are dealt with. Is that, you know, how how they dealt with the conservatives dealt with HIV is they blamed us for getting AIDS, right? Our people in our community for getting AIDS. It's your lifestyle that's causing you to get AIDS, and we saw that as an extension of that argument about our poor mental health and suicide. Actually, what they what you heard some of those people said, well, yes, we agree you've got poor mental health and suicide, but actually you're to blame. Um, you know, uh, people transitioning causes poor mental health. People being gay causes poor mental health. And I think that's a that's an argument over time that they bring out. We saw a lot of old arguments, arguments um, linking us to immoral behaviours um, from a Christian point of view, and that old argument about it's actually you that's, that, that's the problem in all this, um, you being asked as part of the LGBTIQA community. And I think that is a very insidious argument of sort of blame the victim um, and sort of a gaslighting, turn the argument around. Um, and I, I think that increasingly people are starting to see that for what it is. And hopefully, um, you know, that, that, that people, uh, you know, are starting to increasingly... Reject that, reject that and see actually, you know, what is causing poor mental health in trans people and LGBTIQA plus people is discrimination and oppression and that's what this bill would further.
1: The cynical side of me thinks, well, hang on a second, James, maybe they did realise just how insidious it was, but they're politicians, so they saw the political expediency Mm. and they used a strategy of demonisation that's worked so well for them in the past, or they think it has anyway, in relation to electoral success around refugees. And they were just trying the 2022 version of it on, on, you know, putting it on trans kids. But it is refreshing that it failed.
3: Yeah, look, I mean, I think you can draw parallels with this and and Tampa, for sure, for those who remember that. You're you're talking about the refugees. You know, and that was, you know, John Howard's tactic to win election was to talk about children overboard. And again, it was a blame the victim type of look at these um, monsters. And that's that's certainly what they want to do, the trans community, look at these monsters. Um, And I think that it, it, it it can have a political expediency and we don't necessarily have the time or the opportunities and we certainly don't have the platform they do to rebut them. And I think for people in their homes who are isolated, uh, not connecting to community radio, not connecting to LGBTIQ plus organisations and community, those arguments can have a very damaging effect. They might have a political expedient effect, but, yeah, I'm very concerned about the effect they have on our community, um, mental health, how isolated those... Comments from our very Prime Minister can have on people.
1: Joe, you mentioned your out and about program before at Switchboard, which does provide so much support to older queer people. Uh, how's that going, and what are uh, queer older people telling you about their experiences at the moment during the pandemic, especially in aged care?
3: Yeah, look, people want to get back to face to face visiting. Um, for those who know about our program, we we match. Um, we visit older LGBTI people who live in their own home or in aged care. And for two years, that visiting has been on and off in regional areas and very off in metro areas in Melbourne. And we've been doing things like um, as much as we can to stay connected to people, uh, sending care packages, uh, multiple care packages, um, letters. You know, uh, sending letters to people, trying to be digitally connected to people. But what people Telling us in the program is they would love to go back to face-to-face um, visiting, and that is a forever challenge uh, where there is this level of outbreak of Omicron in the community, and and the, and and unfortunately this is a proportionate outbreak in aged care. I think it is a very isolating time for our community. I think it's very sad that on the eve of 40 years, you know, this weekend we're looking at the 40 years since decriminalisation, and really the people we should be focusing on this weekend uh, um, are many of the people that can't actually come out because they're part of that vulnerable-to-COVID population. Um, So I I think it's a a hard time. It's a sad time. We're doing our best. We support 95 people in the program. Um, And, you know, we're sending people a care package this weekend to mark the Pride Festival. Um, And, you know, we look forward to seeing, being able to see, those, see people in person and and, and uh, returning to those face-to-face visits. But we've got to juggle that with COVID safe visiting. So it's, it's, it's very hard and our people are very lonely and they're very isolated.
1: And you've highlighted a really important point that so many of the people are older people that you are supporting were actually of the generation that were, you know, out or, or they couldn't come out because of their sexuality being criminalised in the 1970s and prior to that, um, you know, they are the people who are the heroes, if you like, uh, of the decriminalisation era and they're the ones who are doing it hard in the community at the moment, really hard, like you like you highlight.
3: Yeah, they are. And I think that it's time, and I mean, I've made this public comment before, but I do think it's time in Victoria that we have an older people's LGBTI sort of wraparound service. I think, you know, there's been a lot of discussion, and I'll be advocating that for the, you know, there's been the release of the Victorian government, LGBTI Q plus strategy, whole of government strategy. And I was, there was a little, uh, not enough, or not much in there about older people. And I think sometimes in our community you can really focus on younger people and, and younger people are the future and they're very important. But I, I'm also a strong advocate for services for older people. And in Victoria, apart from the Out and About program and the Rainbow Tick service in aged care, there really isn't uh, very many, if any, services for older LGBTI people I think when we're thinking about the 40 years since decriminalisation and the consequences of criminalisation, our older generation need to be our focus this year in that 40 year celebration. And I'd love to see what comes out of that and is actually a service response for older people. Um, But you know, that's that's me for this year. That's part of my to do list and part of my advocacy task. But I guess the message to people who are listening is like, you know, we've got to get that balance. This week, as we're talking about trans and gender versus kids and um, LGBTI people in schools and the religious discrimination world, we need to think about, we need to do that and we need to think about older people as well. We need to think about every part of our community always.
1: Absolutely. Joe. if anyone wants to reach out to Switchboard, how can they do that?
3: Yeah, for sure. So there's we've got two helplines now. So our Victorian-wide helpline is called Rainbow Door. It runs seven days a week. It's a free service, it's open from 10am to 5pm every day and that's 1-800-729-367 or you can call the Q Life service that is open now and is um, nationwide from 3pm to midnight on 1-800-184-527. Both numbers are on our website, might be easier to access on www.switchboard.org.au or check out any of our social media channels.
1: Joe Ball, always wonderful to get your insights on 3CR. Thank you so much.
3: Yeah, thanks, James.
1: Joe Ball there from Switchboard. Always great to chat with them on the show. You are an in-your-face on 3CR, and here's R.E.M. In there, the Sidewinder sleeps tonight. While well, Jules Allen is a playwright and co stars in her play Betty, which is playing at Theatre Works here in Melbourne uh, from the 16th of February to the 26th. And uh, I chatted with Jules earlier this week.
4: The crux of it is um, my mother was of Thai heritage and uh, came to Australia when she was very young. And what happened was her sister died tragically. In an accident that my mother was blamed for at the age of eleven, and she was sent to Australia from the family home in Thailand. And naturally, it was she was there when the incident occurred, and it was incredibly traumatic for her. Um, when um, her family kind of ostracised her after that, and they struggled to reconnect. But when I was born, and if anyone knows, you know Thai culture, they're incredibly superstitious. Um, everyone thought that I was Betty reincarnated. Now that created a whole host of issues for my mother. Um, the family naturally reconnected with her because I was brought back into the fold, but it was really complex for her. Um, she didn't know how to take or how to manage me being Betty because naturally I was, you know, they adored me. I was treated like royalty and she would had the opposite experience and that she was kind of shunned and ostracised and, in a sense, exiled. So it, it created a dynamic between us that I never understood until after her death. Um, and it was only in that last year of her life that she went into great detail about really the day that Betty died and what happened. And as she kind of declined into dementia, she retold that story to me many, many times. And I, every time there was you know, greater detail or something more put in. And, and I slowly started to understand this woman who I had been at odds with my whole life and not understood the, the, you know, fractious nature of our relationship until I understood what she'd been through and the impact of me being born as so-called the Betty reincarnation, how that had affected her. So that in a nutshell is kind of where it's at.
1: And it's incredible. You've written Betty. You're also performing Betty alongside Sally McKenzie. Yes. Uh, tell us about the dynamic on stage.
4: <laughs> it's it's um, explosive, actually. Sally, if anyone's familiar with Sally's work, she's an incredible actress. She's very strong on stage. Um, she works a, a, enormously hard off stage. So when she, you know, steps onto the stage, she is absolutely dynamic. And so my job really has been to try and kind of match her um, in character and and in a sense recreate what a dynamic is like between a mother and daughter when there's friction because in my experience there's no more complex relationship in the world than the mother-daughter relationship and when it's on fire, good Lord, it's um, I've never fought with anyone the way I fought with my mother. I've never argued with anyone. So it's. It's been, um, Sally's made it a real pleasure to recreate that because of what she brings to the stage. So the dynamic's explosive um, the whole time. It's, it's fraught with energy. It's great.
1: And it sounds like things on stage must escalate very quickly and sometimes in unexpected ways.
4: Yeah, well, the play's also, and people, um, and I, I need to mention this because the, the underbelly of the story is obviously kind of about trauma and, and generational trauma, but it's actually the play's hysterically funny. And so it does reveal itself in a lot of ways. So it kind of, you know, one minute we're laughing our asses off and the next minute we're down a rabbit hole of dementia and then we're off over there. So there's a lot of shifts and moves and changes. Um, yeah, it, yeah, it's, it's a lot. It's great.
1: And it sounds like every performance, every rehearsal as well, must be slightly different because of that incredible energy and its unpredictability.
4: Look, that's so true. And we're blessed to have Ian Sinclair directing and... Um, you know, Ian is an enormously skilled director, but he understands the nature of interpersonal relationships really well. And in particular, this one, and is very clear about kind of not locking things down, which can happen in plays. This play is not one of those things where everything's locked down for that exact reason that you mentioned in that we have to be able to explore those dynamics every time we're on stage so that they're fresh and they're alive and they're bringing something new. And, you know, we we were just rehearsing then and there's one section, and never before has it happened, but the two of us just absolutely cracked up and we could not compose ourselves. So it's every time we're going, you know, I didn't realise how funny. You know how some serious moments can just be hysterically funny when you stop and look at what they are. Um, so, yeah, it's a, you're right, it's a discovery every time. And, you know, the aim is to keep that going so that the audience can kind of come on the journey with us rather than us just delivering them something.
1: And it sounds like that humour is a great gift in tackling taboos.
4: Look, I think it's not a great gift. I think it's an essential gift. I think if, you know, especially in a one-hour play, if it was just taboo and if it was just storytelling around trauma and darkness and pain, the audience would drown and disconnect because it's too much. You can't sit through that comfortably. And so it's almost like the humour allows the audience to come up for air and then they're more open to kind of receiving the harder stuff because they've been able to breathe and and you know knowing there's also probably they know that there's going to be a bit more humor to come so it it just allows them to enjoy the dynamics more and to me it's more honest of a dynamic relationship is that you know they're dark and funny and if you know if anyone's cared for their elderly parents out there yes it's a very challenging time but bloody hell it's it's so funny there's some, we had some hysterical moments when I was looking after mum because um, it was just chaos. It was absolute chaos. And her filter had gone. And if you ever take someone out shopping when they've got no... F- I remember being in aisle six at Woolies once. And she, I'd left her behind, which I shouldn't have done because she used to escape. And she just yelled out, and this isn't in the play, but she yelled out from down the aisle, do you think he wants the ribbed or the large? And I turned around, she was holding this packet of condoms and it was for my son. It was for her grandson. And I was like... I really don't know, Mum. I oh, can't answer that. It was so funny. So she just didn't care. And there's no way you can't laugh at that.
0: 3CR.
1: It sounds like the dementia, as, as tragic as it was, was kind of in some ways a gift because it enabled the two of you to kind of heal your relationship.
4: It's exactly what it was. It pulled down the screen, the facade. And as soon as hers went down, mine went down. And it's like we stopped going to battle and just started to see one another for who we were. We didn't know one another. We were both misunderstood by one another. I didn't know her and I got to know her. And once again for the same reason, because the guards were brought down. And dementia allows a beautiful insight into someone because you get all the pockets of who they are, the subconscious ones, the conscious ones, the bits that have never been revealed and if you pay close attention, you really do get, you know, a full version of a human being in front of you. And, I, you know, exactly what you said, as harrowing as it was and I'm sure it was for her, um, what it gave us in our relationship is something that I will forever be grateful for because when I, you know, by the time she died she was my best friend and if someone had said that to me a couple of years earlier I would have laughed at them you know we were really at odds and she died my best friend so yeah an enormous gift and you must miss her
1: incredibly
4: i do i yeah look i do i do a lot and i um this process has been challenging because i want to do justice to her story um and without also sugarcoating it and making it all wonderful and glamorous and that we had this great relationship, you know, I want to do justice to everyone's story with their parents and that is that they're hard at times. Um, but in doing that, not painting someone as being evil and, you know, there is no, um, there's no criminal in this, there's no monster in this, it's people going through hard stuff and how that then invokes behaviour and, and soften the behaviour we don't like but then bringing it back around to, well, what underpins that? what makes someone behave in that way. And so, yeah, it, it has um, naturally I've thought about her a lot in the last few weeks and do every day kind of going, jeez, I hope I'm getting this right, Mum. Yeah, yeah, definitely.
1: I was just reading your biography and it's fascinating because one thing that jumped out to me was, gee, I could really understand if Jules would want to run away from being a parent. But in <laughs> actual fact, you have adopted 32 kids. That's incredible. <laughs>
4: Yeah, look, I didn't adopt them all. I fostered 32. I ended up adopting three and I had a son of my own. So there's kind of four um, that stayed around. But yet there was a lot. Um, and I learnt a lot in that process, to be honest. I, you know, I think part of that too, you don't understand what your parents go through until you become a parent. And clearly I needed to learn a lot because, like, you know, 32 later I'm still trying to figure it out. Um, yeah, that was an extraordinary part of my life. And you know, as a parent, I'm still learning because my kids are adults now, and they're, I'm having to learn how to navigate that. So, yeah, it was that was a journey. That's another play.
1: <laughs> it sounds like your experiences have given you a great commitment to social justice. Can you tell us about that?
4: Um, it has. I, yeah, I do have an enormous commitment to social justice, and hence why I'm writing this play in an, as an exposure to one you know, something I've seen globally around mother-daughter dynamics, but to a commitment to trying to understand dementia, the various layers. My enormous commitment, you know, has been here and overseas to children in crisis and whether that's children in foster care here or in Cambodia with children in the sex slave trade. And I just, for me, and it's, it's my own personal opinion, I think that we're here to serve one another. And I think once you find out what it is that you're here for and who it is that you need to serve, then... You never quite feel whole or complete unless you're, and you're, you know, you're doing that to some degree. Um, it always has to be about the other.
1: Tell us a bit more about your work in Cambodia.
4: I, I fortunately, after MasterChef, I ended up on a justice tour to Cambodia, which had, you know, journalists, um, wonderful journalists from the Australian um, High Court judges. Somehow, I fumbled my way onto this trip, and it was really an exploration of all the various layers of the infiltration of the sex slave trade into Cambodia, what was happening in the courts. We met with the consulate. We met with the, you know, Australian ambassadors. We met with um, operations on the ground trying to, you know, f- you know, track down pedophiles. We, we covered all areas and I then went back, you know, quite a number of times to get a greater understanding of the organisations over there that I thought were doing quite extraordinary work in helping these kids, um, providing them kind of safe houses after they'd escaped from the sex slave trade and... Um, It's something I will go back to doing and hope to continue to do for the rest of my life because to me it's the most abhorrent of acts in the world and it's something I have an enormous commitment to. And, you know, there's a myth that slavery has nearly died out and unfortunately there's more slaves in the world than there's ever been. And we need to stay um, aware of those things. We can't, you know, Afghanistan at the moment, we've got to stop forgetting what's happening in the rest of the world. It right-sizes our experiences here you know, if ever I'm having a tough day, I can always go, "Jesus, well, I'm not in Yemen, am I? So it's, um, yeah, that kind of work. And, and you know, there's a lot going on here we need to stay mindful of and especially post-COVID and what a lot of kids went through who were in very volatile situations at home with lockdowns. And, you know, there's always a lot that we can tend to. So I try to stay mindful of that and um, to the best of my abilities anyway.
1: And all of those things that you're mindful of and being able to step outside of yourself must have been a great device for writing, for writing, Betty.
4: Yeah. Um, yes, it is. It was and it is a great device for writing. Um, I'm kind of trying to make a pact with myself now that the only things I write are things that people can't share, um, people who don't have a voice. So moving forward, that's something I would like to do is to... Um, bring a voice to those who are voiceless and try and bring it to the stage because it's a platform, I think, it's a fabulous platform to share stories.
1: Jules Allen there and Jules's play Betty is on at TheatreWorks here in Melbourne from the 16th of February to the 26th of February. That's all we've got time for on In Your Face today. Thank you so much for our guests. Taking us out is Macy Gray with iTry and we'll catch you next week on In Your Face.
5: Stop. I believe that fate has brought us here, and we should be together, babe. I'm not there.